0: Today's episode is sponsored by Kind Bars, and if you haven't tried one yet, I highly recommend them. Kind makes delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients that you can recognize and pronounce, which says a whole lot about them right there. My go-to is always the dark chocolate and peanut butter, unless I feel like mixing things up with the dark chocolate cherry cashew. But now you can find your favorite flavor because we've got a special offer for you to get 10 different Kind Bars for free. You just pay for shipping. Go to kindsnacks.com slash best for more details. One more time, to learn more and to get your free sample box, go to kindsnacks.com slash best. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The David Packman Show, Radio Who, What, Why, The Bernie Sanders Show, Democracy Now!, and The Zero Hour.
1: So Nancy, this is a this is a pretty big deal, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you write in your piece that um this uh, at least, you know, when we're talking about a proposal, but I don't know, and you tell me, have we ever seen a uh proposal for a single payer to have this much broad-based support in the Democratic caucus?
2: It is amazing how mainstream this idea of simply expanding medicare to everyone is it's a it's a a sense that it's a a proposal that makes complete sense that every other country has a universal um government sponsored system and the the country through the democratic party was moving in this direction um but it got derailed by a distrust of government Uh, i talk about this in the piece i wrote that that uh Medicare was supposed to be actually a first step. The people who developed it thought it was going to be a first step. So we've gotten derailed. And it was really not since the 30s and 40s when um, President Roosevelt and President Truman were both talking about a universal government-sponsored program that we've seen. this. So it's been a very, very long time since we've had this kind of bold proposal. But it makes complete sense. And it is. Uh, it's It's just uh, wonderful that it's been introduced.
1: All right. So let's I mean, let's go back uh, to to the New Deal. Um, That is uh, you entitled your piece The Next Step in the New Deal. And um, uh, the New Deal, of course, um, uh, uh, created Social Security, among other um, uh, important social insurance programs we have. But Social Security is probably the most well-known of that era and it was not a um it was not uh... fully grown i guess on the uh... on uh, upon its arrival in many respects you know when you look at uh... Um, uh... professions that are covered um, still not necessarily uh... fully ripened but pretty much so over the years Um what 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 was FDR's intent in terms of, uh, in that era, to introduce something like this? And what were the forces that 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 prevented it from happening?
2: Well, it's very interesting. The, the um, FDR and the people around him understood social security. They first talked about economic security, and then it got changed to the more alliterative social security. Much more broadly than we talk about it today, they talked about it as really, and thought about it as cradle-to-grave protection. So they thought about, you know, that you needed a healthy childhood, you needed education, you needed a guaranteed job, you needed unemployment insurance, which is the other big piece that was enacted as part of the Social Security Act um, when you were in between jobs. And Social Security was supposed to be, is, and was intended to be, insurance against the loss of wages. The program we today think of social security, which provides protection in the event of disability, old age, or death, grew incrementally. but the committee Roosevelt, six months before he introduced the legislation, put together a committee an interagency committee to develop the legislation, and they were looking at they were looking at national health insurance they were looking at um unemployment they were looking at um old age protection and so forth they had quite a large vision but he understood he was, he was a practical politician and knew that you couldn't do too much at once so the health insurance piece dropped out of the final proposal that was introduced in congress but when he signed the social security act into law he talked about it as a cornerstone um On which to build not yet complete, and I think he had in his mind this idea he had many things in his mind, um, but one of them was certainly universal health insurance
1: and and when we talk about uh uh you know universal, i mean I guess the question is i mean let's delineate uh and take a break just from the his- history because I do want to sort of catch up with what happened afterwards, but when we say universal versus Uh, Medicare versus single payer, and maybe uh, it's not so much uh versus between those last two. I mean, what? Just tell us the distinctions here, because theoretically, the Affordable Care Act at least was uh perceived as a bite at the apple of universality.
2: Yes, although what uh, the um um what FDR and the people around him saw was that there were some things the government does more efficiently and better than the private sector. So they were very focused on direct programs. You know, it's fine if if there was a private insurance market and people wanted to buy it. They weren't trying to drive out, you know, private retirement annuities, for example. But they understood that really the the most effective and best way to do it um, was through the government. And in fact, it was a movement that started at the end of um, the beginning of the um, 20th century, the United States was a latecomer to all these programs, including Social Security. Europe was way ahead and had done these programs. And so the idea was to build on the success of, of these other nations. And having gone through the Depression, they really saw how how insecure relying on the private sector could be and that you needed a government um, government protection Um, You know, you wanted to to have a a thriving private sector, but you wanted to have government protection. So when he was talking about, he was really talking about Medicare for All. He wouldn't have called it that because Medicare wasn't around. But it was this idea that we were all in a common program. And then um, President Truman really pushed hard for that. And um, the proposal was called Socialism. Um, and, you know, the doctor and, and all the, the boogeyman of, um, you know, the government coming between you and your doctor and all of that sort of stuff. And Truman was unable to get it done. So Medicare was really a fallback position. It was an incremental pr- approach to get to the point that, um, that Roosevelt and Truman wanted to get to with one bite, which is why I, I say that it's the next step in the New Deal.
1: I mean, it's interesting to me because obviously the, um, the criticism that we hear, the pushback it sounds, um, very similar, uh, now I guess 80 years ago, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, to what we were doing just with the affordable care act, which was, um, largely or at least, you know, in part the Medicaid part obviously is uh is more of social insurance, but uh the rest of it was through the the private marketplace. But the salience of a critique of calling something socialism ha resonated, it seems to me, much more during the height of the Cold War uh than it would today.
2: Yeah, I mean it's very interesting. Um President Roosevelt in fact in in just before he announced the um the social security proposal had a fireside chat where he said tim you're going to hear from tim those who are timid that this is you know this what i'm proposing is socialism he said but this is as, as american as um, all our values it goes back to our roots and that that was a way of of um trying to preempt that argument but i do think the argument has less salience and of course that was um you know the 1930s so it was the russian revolution and all of that but the um i do think it's lost some of the salience because uh first of all um bernie sanders ran proudly um as a um democrat and the republicans have used it for people like um president obama who was really quite a centrist democrat so that i think the the sting for people who lived through the cold war for older people i think it's still got oh my gosh socialism but i think for younger people and my hope is that it's just name calling you know the and as i i like to say um if you um like social security you like socialism
3: So we have now the full text of the Bernie Sanders Medicare for all 2017 bill. I want to dig into the ins and outs. And there are sort of three major areas that I want to talk about with you today. Number one, how will the program work? What will it cover? What are the logistics? Number two, this is a pretty important part. How will it be paid for? And then number three, how will it affect the current system? Number three is quick but very, very important. And we're going to talk about that as well. So let's start with the logistics, right? Every individual who is a resident of the United States is entitled to benefits under Bernie Sanders Medicare for all proposal. Right wingers are going crazy because they're saying, wait a second resident, what's a resident are illegals residents for the purposes of Bernie's bill. The question is actually one that has not yet been answered because as per Bernie's bill, the secretary will decide what the rules are for determining residency specifically for the purposes of this act. So we don't have the answer to that right now. Okay. Uh, Beyond that, how does enrollment work? Well, enrollment works uh, after the enactment of Medicare for all 2017, which will probably never happen. But let's imagine that it does. You would have automatic enrollment when you are born. Everybody gets a universal Medicare card. There would be four years to put in place a plan after the bill is signed into law that will incorporate all adults into Medicare for all. And then there would be one year allowed to get everybody who is under age 19. So basically 18 or younger is another way of saying under age 19. At the time of the passage of the act, they would get coverage within a year. And uh, those would sort of be the three categories, people under 19 at the time of its passage, people 19 or over, and then people born after the passage of Medicare for all. What would be covered? What services would be covered under Bernie's Medicare for all 2017 bill? Mostly what we would expect, right? Hospital services, including both in and outpatient as well as emergency services and prescriptions while in the hospital or at the hospital ambulatory patient services would be covered, primary and preventive care, prescriptions and medical devices, mental health and substance abuse treatment, labs and diagnostics, which means everything from blood work to CAT scans and MRIs, uh, reproductive maternity and newborn care would be covered, as would pediatrics, oral health, audiology, vision services and short term rehab. Now, very similarly to Obamacare. Medicare for all 2017 would allow for states to put in place additional standards as long as they exceed the standards set by the bill. That's interesting because you might remember Massachusetts is a good example of this. When Obamacare passed, uh, the system in Massachusetts didn't change because Romney care, as it is colloquially known mass health, some call it, uh, or mass, mass health being one component of Romney care, already exceeded the requirements of Obamacare. And in the same way, even under Medicare for all states would be able to put in place their own plans if they wanted, as long as they exceed the requirements of Medicare for all. Before we talk about cost, because that's a bigger discussion, let me briefly talk about how this would affect the current for profit employer connected healthcare care system. Uh, it would Im- impact it significantly right under Bernie's plan. It would be against the law. For private insurance companies to provide plans to sell plans that provide the same benefits as what Medicare will offer. If private industry, if private insurance wants to offer plans that would offer services above and beyond that are different than what Medicare would cover, they would be allowed to, but they would not be allowed to sell plans that cover what Medicare covers. I mean, that is major Pat, right? And that is something we are going to have to talk about. It is going to, if it passed, really do damage to the private insurance industry by design.
4: Yeah, just a couple points I would add. It would allow uh, consumers to pay up to $250 for out-of-pocket prescription costs and allow the government to uh, negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. And also, I mean, this not only lowers the requirement age to zero, but also beefs up Medicare within its own right. Right. So adding, you know, dental, adding uh, vision coverage, adding hearing aid coverage. So if you want to uh, appeal to people who are already eligible and qualify for Medicare already on the program, it will kind of how you do it. Absolutely. So the big
3: question, what's the big matzo ball hanging out there? How do you pay for this? It's obviously going to be paid for primarily through tax increases, but we actually don't have a lot of the information specifically about how this bill released yesterday would be paid for in terms of what would the tax increase be? And this is by design, actually. The Washington Post reported earlier in the week uh, that the specifics of the tax increase would be determined in a separate bill. Now, a lot of people find that to be annoying or they say it's devious Bernie's releasing the bill that tells us all the free stuff we're going to get. And later he'll quietly release the bill that explains how to pay for it. I understand that perspective, but there are actually pretty good reasons to separate legislatively what it is that the plan would cover that the system would cover and then separately discuss the, the financial side and it relates to the appropriations process. So while I understand the frustration, it would be great to know exactly how much this would cost right away. I get why it's going to be a separate bill, but don't worry because we do actually have the CBO scoring from the campaign version of Medicare for all that Bernie Sanders proposed. You might remember that during his campaign, within the democratic primary process, Bernie Sanders proposed something relatively similar and the CBO scored that. And we can look at that to get an idea. Okay. That plan from Bernie from earlier in the democratic, in the presidential election during the democratic primary, it was estimated to have a price tag of $1.4 trillion, significant amount of money. And it would be paid for mostly with two provisions. Number one, Americans would pay a new 2.2% income tax. Okay. 2.2% income tax on Americans and employers would pay 6.2%, 6.2% of salaries. And at the very high, high, high level of income for individuals, there would also be a tax hike there. When you run the numbers, it's pretty damn reasonable. When you think about, we talked uh, this week about the median household income in 2016 was about $59,000. That's roughly $1,300 for the year. If you imagine a 2.2% tax, that is way less than the average household is paying for health insurance. Even if you add the $250 deductible towards prescription drugs, you're still talking about some people say, Hey, this is the biggest tax increase in history. You're also talking about one of the biggest. Decreases in history in the cost of healthcare to the individual.
4: Yeah, because you eliminate premiums, right? Most deductibles as well, and copays. I Absolutely. mean, that's three for one.
3: In total, you are talking about significant long-term savings. And uh, the other thing that, as Pat alluded to earlier, that Medicare for All 2017 would do is number one, it would establish a fee schedule, which basically says, okay, here is how much Medicare will pay for X treatment and or, or procedure or whatever. And there are some individuals who are worried and they're saying, oh, Medicare is going to screw the doctors. You're used to getting 200 for this. Medicare says you only get 100. And since everybody's on Medicare, there's nothing you can do about it has not happened in other countries that have nationalized healthcare. But in addition, it will allow Medicare to become a huge buyer of pharmaceuticals and it will actually allow Medicare to really negotiate with pharmaceutical companies to get better prices for people on prescription drugs. What we do know is over the long term, this type of plan in other countries has significantly reduced healthcare spending. Remember when someone says healthcare for all is not affordable, we're already paying more in the U S per capita for healthcare than any other country, including some of the countries with the most expensive cost of living. The U S is number one in per capita healthcare spending. The number two in three countries, this this is amazing, are Luxembourg and Switzerland, Hmm. countries that are incredibly wealthy with incredibly high cost of living. And we still pay more per capita for healthcare in the United States.
4: And this really was the best approach to just call it Medicare for all because yes. it doesn't seem like it's some foreign thing. What is single payer healthcare anyway? Right. right. And it already polls very well. I mean, 77 percent of Americans say that Medicare is an essential government service. Jacob, so you're just expanding it. Uh,
3: Jacob Ball on my YouTube live stream yesterday said, you know, th- it needs to be messaged as the biggest decrease in premiums in history rather than the biggest tax increase in history. 280 Z Turbo, another user on our uh, live stream who participated yesterday, said single payer isn't free, but your current health care also isn't free. That's something that you need to be reminding people if you are Bernie Sanders and the other Democratic senators that are co-sponsoring this.
5: It does seem that that it's almost like a four-legged stool. The patients are not really part of that, but it's the insurance companies, the hospitals, the doctors, and the drug and pharmaceutical companies, and the way they have all worked together over these past 30, 40 years.
6: Well, they're often kind of codependent in very, um, unproductive ways that uh, say much more about the business of healthcare than about healthcare itself. I mean, what we find now is that even many of the patient advocacy groups are funded by pharma. So really, what's their message when they're funded by pharma? It's not, gee, why does this drug cost $70,000 a year? It's, why doesn't our insurance pay for it? you know it's 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 such a distorted kind of inflationary lens to look at healthcare through in all of these healthcare debates in Washington at the state level at companies No one really is representing the patients and their needs and their distress as they open these bills and face the $5,000 deductible or the 20% copay on insulin that's risen by uh, 400% in the last 10 years. You know, so we need to speak up for our own interests here. The other thing that seems to have
5: happened at the same time is almost on purpose an increasing complexity of all of this making it more and more difficult for the patient to understand
6: yeah and i don't think you know these things don't happen for business purposes in order to make a profit but because they make a profit and because they're 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 conducive to making money there's no there's no resistance to them so in our system you know what you see happening is layers and layers of middlemen Introduce. So say, for example, a joint implant, um, a company is charging $22,000 for that. Um, because, hey, there are only four joint manufacturers in the U.S., and uh, some orthopedists like to refer to them as a cartel. You know, they're all charging a lot of money, way more than they charge in other countries, and and um, it's in no one's interest to offer a discounted project pro- uh, product. But what happens is the hospital says, wow, that's really expensive. So the hospital hires a joint negotiator who talks to a joint broker, and the, the uh the manufacturer has a joint salesman so there someone calculated that there are 13 middlemen between that joint being produced and it being put into a patient's body and those are all for-profit companies in the in the middle and they're all taking you know their 10% cut so why does a joint end up costing $22,000 well because there are a lot of people kind of feeding off that that list price. And, you know, we heard it when uh, the CEO of Mylan was taken to the congressional hearing saying, why does the EpiPen cost $600 now? And she said, oh, well, there are all these middlemen, so we don't get that $600. Now, you know, There are two layers of questions there. I mean, first of all, what value do the middlemen serve for those of us patients? And the answer is, you know, little to none. And the second question is, you know, why does an ancient drug put in a fancy new device deserve the same patent as the ancient drug by itself, which is really the life-saving entity? Um, You know, epinephrine is cheap. Epiprens are hugely expensive just because epinephrine is in kind of a cool new package. And that may have some value it's a slightly you know it's easier to use than a syringe and a little vial of epinephrine, but two hundred dollars four hundred dollars not if we were paying out of pocket and I think that's why we're seeing people squawking now because with high deductibles and copays we are seeing these prices now we are feeling them and we weren't um a few years ago when our insurance was covering things better, so now we see this widespread um outrage at health care and health care costs. We see at the town hall meetings, people standing up and going, you know, don't take away my insurance. I can't afford this. I'm being, you know, I, I'm being devastated. I haven't gotten a raise in 10 years. Why? Because your employer has been increasingly paying more and more to health insurance costs.
5: Is there a tipping point in all of this? Is there a point that you can (laughs) see where the system just collapses under its own financial weight?
6: Well, um, you know, I had thought... I would have thought over the last few years we'd reached that tipping point. I mean, people spending 20 to 30 percent of their household income on healthcare costs. Um, that to me is, is pretty near that tipping point. Uh, uh, people not getting raises for 10 years because of healthcare costs. That should create a tipping point, but I think we haven't adequately connected all these hardships to things that are fixable that we don't have to put up with. You know, We've accepted this narrative of, well, healthcare is expensive. We're doing really important, valuable things for you. We have no choice but to pay this much for the drug. Otherwise, we won't get drug development. This is not necessary and we're not getting results that are better than anywhere else in the world. In fact, uh, for many diseases, Studies show, we're getting worse results. So um, don't just take this narrative, oh, we have the best health care and it has to cost this much because it's so very valuable. Well, no, no, no. You know, we're paying two to three times as much as people in the rest of the world Um I don't expect us to overnight get to any of those levels, but certainly we can turn the ship around and not be um, not taking summer vacations or going bankrupt or having our credit ratings dinged because of these really outrageous costs.
5: To some extent, it's hard to imagine that except for anyone that is in the system and profiting from the system, that there can be any legitimate defenders of this current system.
6: Well, um, you know, certainly many, many physicians feel extremely uncomfortable with this system. They do not think their patients are getting value, and it bothers them. You know, there's one group of physicians who are a bunch of surgeons in northern Wisconsin, red state, you know, red red area for sure. And one of them said to me, You know, I always felt like I was helping people by taking out their appendix. And then a patient came in to me and said, Doc, you know, I feel better, but I I just got this bill for $25,000 and I can't afford it. And this doctor, uh, Hans Reichsteiner said to me, you know, I'd always felt good about being a physician. And then I realized in saving his life, I'd bankrupted his family. And so, no, you know, doctors, many of the good doctors in the system are so stressed by what's going on. So who are the defenders? Um, You know, you hear them certainly come from pharma. You hear them come from some of the hospital executives who say, you know, what else can we do? Well, you look around the hospital and you say... Gee, maybe you didn't have to buy the new wing. Maybe you could have reduced the bills or maybe you don't need a curator and all this art. Maybe you should not charge so much for your outpatient surgery center. You know, the defenders tend to be people who are profiting from the system, not the people who are just, and there are many people who are just trying to deliver good health care. And that's, to me, the essential problem, that the values of health care are Patients, you know, helping people, caring. The values of business are efficiency, revenue generation, profit maximization, and you know, a lot of the people involved in our healthcare system are are profit-driven, and the values of medicine and the values of business intersect sometimes, but many times they don't.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, and they are on a mission to save home cooking by making it more fun so we can enjoy the whole experience, not just the final plate. They are a meal kit delivery service that creates new, delicious, nutritionally balanced recipes each week with step by step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients, measures to the exact quantities needed so there is no food waste, and delivers food to your doorstep in a recyclable, insulated box for free. And when I tried HelloFresh at home, their mission statement came through right away. It's evident that they have prioritized ease of preparation, which is good because they know that making it easy is the best way to help people form the good habit of cooking at home. So try it yourself and use delicious ingredients you will love to eat and simple recipes you'll love to cook. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter best of the left30 when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com and enter best of the left 30 for $30 off your first week of deliveries.
7: There is an enormous amount of disinformation and outright lies about not only the Canadian healthcare system, but healthcare systems, universal healthcare systems all over the world. And one of them is all the doctors in Canada are just fleeing the country. They can't stand practicing there. They're all heading to the United States. That's why it takes so long to get across the border. Is uh, what's, what's the truth of that? It's
8: not true. So, uh, you know, the, the statistics on this are, have been collected uh, over many decades, and in fact, for the last many years, I mean, of course, there are some Canadians who move to the US, There are some Americans who moved to Canada, um, uh, I think, you know, for all kinds of different reasons. Um, but the net uh, migration, actually, for many years has been in the other direction. So there are more American physicians moving to Canada than Canadian physicians moving to the United States. And I have many colleagues who've gone to the U.S., um, often for highly specialized training. Your country is ten times the size of ours population-wise. You have, um, many more medical centers than we do. And so, um, it's not uncommon for Canadians to go to the U.S. for some part of their, uh, subspecialty training and come home. And so they don't choose to stay. I have lots of, uh, colleagues who've, who've done that trajectory. And one of the reasons that they will often site is that uh, although they were grateful for the training they received and it was great education, et cetera, they didn't want to work in a system where they had to worry about whether or not their patients were going to be able to pay for their care. They wanted to come back and work work in a system where they can focus on treating their patients.
7: And are Canadian physicians decently paid?
8: Extremely well paid, actually, by international standards. Um, and in some specialties and subspecialties, they're paid more than their American counterparts.
7: Okay. Um. Now needless to say uh, the Canadian system is not perfect nor is any system in the world and I know you've just written a a book a bestseller on the Canadian best selling list called Better Now Six Big Ideas to Improve Healthcare for All Canadians. Um what do you see as the major problems today in the Canadian system?
8: And the most important problem that I see and I see it in my practice every day is the fact that our system does not include prescription medications when they're uh, given outside of hospital. So when people are admitted to the hospital, they need IV antibiotics or they need, you know, cardiac medication or whatever, anything they need, um it's paid for, but as soon as they set foot on the sidewalk outside the hospital with a prescription in their hand, they're on their own. And so, uh, you know, that, is that has that true
7: for all income levels?
8: It is not. We uh, almost every every single province has some public uh drug coverage often uh, seniors are covered. actually looks a lot like your system. You know, met, you've got Medicare for right. people over sixty five. You've got Medicaid for low-income people. We have um, often public programs that will cover people on social assistance. So it's often the working poor or people who are in precarious jobs. Many of the they it's a similar population to the folks who are uninsured in the u s. But in Canada, it's not um an insurance for all healthcare um it's mostly around prescription drugs
7: so you're in the same situation that american physicians are that you may write out uh, a prescription to a patient and that patient may not be able to afford the to
8: Absolutely it. and I have patients who take their pills every other day or who take them for a few weeks and then you know have to wait until the check comes in to fill it again we have uh yeah, so I mean, it's a big issue, a big problem. And it's because our system was designed in the 1960s, when prescription medication was less of a focus of uh, of medical care. Today, it's a cornerstone of the management of chronic disease. I don't think you can have a, uh you know, a well-developed universal healthcare system that doesn't include prescription medicines. And so, Doctors and patients and nurses and all kinds of uh, groups in Canada have been pushing very hard to uh, convince our governments to bring prescription medicines into our Canadian Medicare and include medically necessary prescription drugs. That, to me, is the next frontier for the Canadian system. And when your Medicare for All bill passes here in the United States you will actually have a better plan than we do in Canada currently because it will include uh medically necessary prescription drugs. So um I I hope that we don't um I hope that we don't fall too far behind you. <laughs>
7: <laughs> um let me ask you uh this um and by the way we should mention that in terms of prescription drugs Here in the United States, many people, including myself, talk about Canada. In fact, I was the first member of Congress to go over the Canadian border to purchase medicine that was a fraction of the cost that it was here in the United States. But the truth is that compared to the rest of the world, Canada has very high prices. I think you're second in the world next to the United States. We're the highest. You're the second, and countries all over the world are selling the same exact medicine at a fraction of the price. Um let me ask you this let me uh, uh, you know healthcare systems uh, and healthcare policy doesn't evolve in a vacuum it, it evolves within a political framework can you give us a minute to talk about how and when the uh canadian healthcare system evolved you mentioned i think yesterday uh in your testimony that your parents uh your family suffered because they did not have uh, the Canadian system was not around at that point. Talk about that, and talk about the evolution of the Canadian system politically.
8: Yeah, so I mean, it's not that old. The Canadian system. When my uh, grandparents immigrated to Canada in the early 1950s, there was no universal health care, and they were essentially bankrupted by medical bills when my grandfather had a heart attack, and. Uh, in, through the 1950s and into the early 1960s, there was, uh, there, there was a movement towards universal healthcare that began in one province, like our American state. So we had one premier, a uh, social democratic premier, Tommy Douglas, who is a, now a Canadian hero and an icon, who started universal first all un- uh, universal public insurance for hospital services and then medical services and that uh model spread across the country but it was not without a lot of resistance and a lot of uh it took a lot of political courage to do and in fact uh famously in Saskatchewan uh, the province where medicare began in the early 60s when they implemented when Tommy Douglas implemented universal uh public insurance the doctors went on strike and there was a showdown between uh, the physicians who at that time wanted to preserve their ability to charge patients and uh, the premier uh, who had the public on his side. And at the end of the day, there was a uh, an agreement that was reached and Medicare soon spread across the country. And Tommy Douglas is now in 2004. Our public broadcasting corporation hosted a competition for the greatest Canadian of all time. Canadians all over the country voted and Tommy Douglas was the winner. And so he is really viewed, uh, through the lens of history as a, as an incredibly brave person who took a stand, um, on an issue of social justice. Uh, and he's a Canadian hero, but it wasn't easy. And, uh, having the public behind him and understanding the importance, having the nurses, uh, behind the federal government in the 1980s, uh, when there was another resurgence of private medicine that needed to be um, taken down. Uh, these are these are very important moments in Canadian history, and at every turn it required courage on the part of uh, politicians, and it required the public to stand up and say, we support you, we want this.
7: Right. What Dr. Martin just said I think is profoundly important, and uh, if anyone thinks that doing the right thing in terms of health care which is guaranteeing health care to all people and having a cost-effective system and taking on the drug companies and the insurance companies and Wall Street and the medical equipment suppliers and all those people who make hundreds of billions of dollars off of our current system, anyone thinks that's easy? Or if that is just going to be done here on Capitol Hill, then you don't know anything about politics. And what Dr. Martin is just saying, in a sense, there was a political revolution in Saskatchewan. It didn't happen. yet. A, a, a very brave, progressive leader and a party prepared to stand up, take on their entire establishment, take on the doctors at that time. But as I understand it, what happened is, because it worked so well in Saskatchewan, people all over the rest of the country are saying, hey, if they could do it in Saskatchewan, why not Ontario? Why not Quebec, et cetera, et cetera? Is that kind of what happened?
8: That's kind of what happened. And in fact, you know, even, and, and the physicians who were afraid that this was going to result in government takeover of their practices and, you know, not being well paid and all of this stuff. Those fears have not come to pass. And I do think that it's important for Canadian physicians to share with American physicians our experience of this system. Nobody interferes in the practice of medicine out of, you know, out of our government offices.
7: So the truth is, I want to spend a minute on that one, is that the critics, the insurance companies and the drug companies and some of my colleagues here in the Senate it's government-run healthcare. Are you a government employee, Doctor Martin?
8: I am not a government employee. I am self-employed, independent entrepreneur. <laughs>
7: <laughs> All right, but in a, in a sense, you practice for better or worse. By the way, unlike the British uh, and other countries which do have socialized healthcare. Uh, you practice very much the same way that an American, most American physicians would practice, yes? That's
8: right. It's just that when I send my bill to the insurance company, it's a public insurance company instead of a private insurance company.
7: And that is it. So when you hear, as you will, uh, 24-7 now, uh, all of our critics saying this is a government takeover of healthcare, uh, that is just nonsense. What changes is perhaps the color of your insurance card and what's on it. So instead of saying Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or instead of saying United Healthcare, it will be Medicare. Uh, and your doctor will be practicing in just the same way he or she practices today. You're going to go to the hospital that you want. And by the way, I don't, I don't know the answer to this with regard to Canada. You'll, you'll help us here. Uh, you know, my colleagues here say that if you have a Medicare for all system, you're going to be limited in terms of the, the, your choice of doctor. Truth is now under this system, the func- this functional system, many people can't go to the doctor that they want because their doctor is not in their health plan network. What is the story in Canada? Can people choose the doctor they want?
8: Absolutely, you can choose the doctor you want because every doctor is in the network. There's only one network and everybody's in it. So, actually, you can choose any doctor you want. You can choose any hospital you want. You can go anywhere you want to get your, your care. The reality is that most people, uh, you know, get their care from their local hospital. They don't, you know, most people are not in the business of traveling all over the place to get health care services. Uh, but some do, or, or some will travel to get a second opinion to some other location. So, there are no restrictions um, on choice in that way. So,
7: would it be fair to say that actually? Within Canada, you have more freedom of choice than you do in many parts of the United
8: Absolutely, States. absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, there's no doubt. All
7: right, but the high cost, going back to your concerns about the, the, the situation in Canada now, uh, high cost of prescription drugs on affordability of prescription drugs is a major issue. It's not the only one. Uh, there is concern about waiting time, for example. Talk about that a bit, please.
8: So this is a... a- uh something that gets a lot of press right i know south of, of the of our border and people talk about the wait times so the first thing i think is important for people to understand is that canadians do not wait for urgent or emergent issues so um you know if people get seriously sick in canada they have a heart attack or a cancer diagnosis or whatever our outcomes are excellent for those um serious conditions and uh and we don't, you know, we don't wait any longer than anybody else in the world for those for those important things. Having said that, we do have a problem uh, with wait times for what we call elective or non-urgent procedures. So, people who are waiting to see a specialist for a non-urgent issue. You give or, us some examples. Uh, of so, you know, if, you know uh, if I have a patient who has. Headaches, and uh, want the opinion of a neurologist about the management of their migraines, for example. You know, not not because I'm worried that they have brain cancer. If I'm worried they have brain cancer, they'll get their MRI tomorrow, and they'll, you know, the system will move very quickly. But if I have a patient who's got migraines and I need advice about how to manage it, they might wait several months to see. Um, a neurologist for a non-urgent problem like that, or non urgent surgeries, the classic example being a hip or a knee replacement,
7: so how long will it take me in uh,
8: you wrong. know it depends on where you are in the country sometimes it's a few months, sometimes it's a year uh in some places sometimes it's been even longer than that, that that people wait for a hip or a knee replacement and uh and I think that's totally unacceptable. Uh, I don't think that we should um stand for it in in our system. Uh, I think that uh there's no reason why people should have to wait. And what we have determined, those of us who study these issues and work on these issues, is that although those waits are a problem, they are not caused by the fact that our insurance plan is paid for by the government. The reason that we have difficulties with waits is because we have done a poor job of organizing the delivery systems of care. So just to give you one example on the hip and the knee replacement issue, uh, you might have eight surgeons working in the same hospital who all do hip and knee replacements, and each of those surgeons keeps their own waiting list. Because they're independent... Practitioners, and one might be a new graduate, and said, so "I know this happens. I get these notifications. I'm a new graduate. I've just started. I have no waiting list. Please send me your patients." And one might be, you know, 40 years into practice and have a two-year waiting list. They're work. They're doing the same procedure. They're working in offices next door to each other. And so, what we have discovered is, you can dramatically bring down the wait time if those people be willing to share a waiting list, and the you know the next available uh, surgeon is the person who sees the patient. But that requires. Um, cooperation among healthcare providers. It requires the public to be willing to see the next available surgeon. It requires a change in the way that we organize our structures and those are the kinds of solutions that we are moving to in Canada. When we've moved in that direction, it's made a big difference in our weights.
9: Last week, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a bill that would provide universal health care by expanding Medicare to include every American. Sanders introduced the bill flanked by doctors, nurses, and some of the bills, and this is what's new from his previous bills, some of the bill's 15 Democratic co-sponsors.
10: Today, we begin the debate vital to the future of our economy as to why it is that in the United States. We spend almost twice as much per capita on health care as any other nation on earth. And yet we have 28 million people without any health insurance and even more who are underinsured with high deductibles and copayments.
9: Yes, that is Bernie Sanders. We're with Naomi Klein, who comes from the country of Canada. Um, Naomi, your response, not only to what he's done there—and it is fascinating what happened. Two weeks before his announcement, he had no co-sponsors, as usual, for each time he introduced this bill. What might be most telling is that the people who jumped on board um, were people who might be running for president uh, in the next election. And so they saw this as a winner— Talk about this very different vision of what could be offered in America.
11: Right. I mean, I think it's 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 an incredibly encouraging development that, that Sanders has led in this way and that so many people see the writing on the wall, right, um, because I think this posture of just resisting Trump, just being anti-Trump, this posture of no, right, which is why I call the book No is Not Enough, uh, is, is catastrophic politically, morally, ecologically, uh, it, 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 because it is not enough to just get to where we were before Trump, because where we were before Trump is what produced Trump. And it is the landscape uh that supercharged uh, the fascist right. And it is also the landscape that failed to energize progressives in the last electoral cycle cycle because there was not enough of an offer, not enough of an answer to the kind of fake populism that Trump was peddling. And so, uh, you know, this is not new for Sanders. He has been talking about Medicare for All for a very long time. But it is new to have figures like Cory Booker, with his ties to the insurance industry, um, looking around and going. This is what's actually needed to succeed in this political landscape. Um, you know, and I think we need to expand that from, uh, you know, Medicare for all, clean energy for all, 100% renewable energy for the 100%, which, uh, you know, we're talking about more and more within the, within the climate movement. And I think we see people pushing that envelope, you know, uh, young, uh, people covered by DACA saying, well, we're not satisfied with just de- de- defending DACA. We don't want to be pitted against our parents. We want status for all. So, you know, that political ambition is increasing. Um, so it isn't just about holding the line, uh, protecting where things were before Trump, but actually getting somewhere else. And I think what we need in the coming months is connecting the dots between all of these issues to really build a people's platform. Uh, so we see, uh, and I think we're starting to see the outlines of that, uh, which, which is very exciting. Setting. Yeah, I'm, I am from Canada, and I enjoy Medicare for all. Is that, was, isn't ha- yeah. it why
9: you really grew up there, why your parent, you your parents were Americans, left because of the Vietnam War, <clears> your dad was But stayed doctor. for the health care, yeah. <laughs> No,
11: it, it, it's absolutely true, um, and and in fact, we moved back to the United States briefly when I was when I was a child, um, and and my father didn't want to work in in the American healthcare system, didn't didn't want to work in a system where where you had to be rich to get sick, um, and and was part of uh, of that process of of building up uh, this system, which is under attack in Canada, which is not perfect, but remains a model, uh, and and there's a great deal of misinformation about about the the Canadian system within the United States, and it's spread very deliberately. Uh, You know, it's a system that needs better funding, that needs more protection. uh, But at its core, um, you know, it's incredibly simple. I was glad to see Danielle Martin standing with Bernie Sanders, uh, who is one of the great defenders, a doctor of, of the, of the public health care system in Canada, making the argument that what we need to do is fund it better. Um, we need to expand it actually in Canada. But this is fundamentally, you know, I've had catastrophic illness in my family, and it's an amazing thing to have somebody in your family be in hospital for two years and get a bill for twenty five dollars, you know, for what cable television costs or something like that.
9: I want to turn to Hillary Clinton speaking on CBS with Leslie Stahl after the release of her book, What Happened, her take on the 2016 presidential
6: election. I've been a Democrat for decades. I have supported Democrats. I've worked for Democrats. Bernie's not a Democrat. And, And that's not a slam. That's what he says himself. And I think a lot of what uh, he churned up in the primary campaign was very uh, hurtful in the general election against me. And I see him doing the same thing. I see him, you know, with his supporters. He doesn't disown the things they say about, you know, some of my favorite Democrats, people like Kamala Harris, who is out there speaking up and speaking out, and she's being attacked from the left. So that's enough.
9: How- That's Hillary Clinton. Um, On Meet the Press on Sunday, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders responded to Clinton's criticism.
10: I worked as hard as I could after endorsing Hillary Clinton. I went all over this country. And I would remind people, you know, people say, well, not everybody who voted for Bernie ended up voting for Hillary. No kidding. That's what happens in politics. If my memory is correct, in 2008— Something like 24 percent of the people who voted for Hillary Clinton in the primaries ended up voting for John McCain. That's the nature of politics. Most people you know, are not rigidly Democrats or Republicans. They vote where they want. I worked as hard as I could uh, to see that Hillary Clinton uh, was, would be elected president.
9: Now, this isn't just between Hillary Clinton and uh, Bernie Sanders. This goes to the direction of the Democratic Party, which is what's really important here. And I, you were just about to go into what needs to happen. And this is the sixth anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, when thousands streamed into Zuccotti Park, not far from our studios here in New York, um, talking about the 99 percent and the 1 percent. Mm-hmm. So. Talk about what you see happening. I mean, on the one hand, fifteen sponsors He'll probably get more. You had Elizabeth Warren. You had Kamala Harris, the first, the new African American senator from California, and many others. Leahy as well, uh, not considered the closest friend of Bernie Sanders, signing up.
11: Look, it's certainly interesting timing that 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 Hillary Clinton is out there, sort of um, like re-prosecuting, finger pointing about, about about the campaign. While Bernie is out there, uh, you know, trying to, to, trying to solve the underlying problem. And, and you know, we know that, 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 that bill's not going to pass now, but if it becomes a centerpiece of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of the camp, of the next presidential campaign, that could be very, very significant. Um, you know, and, and so I don't, personally, I don't think Bernie's ever looked better. I think the, the, the comparison is, is very clear there. Um, and, uh, and he is taking the party exactly where it needs to go.
0: we reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, what can you do to support the Medicare for All movement? Desmond Tutu famously said, Hope is being able to see the light despite all of the darkness. And it sure has been dark lately. But this month, as historic hurricanes and earthquakes added a new level of panic to an already frightening political landscape, the announcement of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill was a much-needed bright spot. The significance of this announcement is getting lost in the mainstream media news cycle, so let's lay it out here. This is the beginning of a major movement for a political idea that even just a few years ago was seen as completely radical in the U.S., but now actually has a chance of becoming law. It's an idea that will save lives, help counter growing income inequality, save us all money in the long run, and bring us up to speed with other first world nations. It embodies so much of what we stand for for as progressives, and that's why we need to get ready for the long and arduous battle against special interests with power and money to make sure it succeeds. We're including links to groups and organizations you should get involved with in the show notes. But right now, other than the hashtag Medicare for All and the videos Bernie is putting out, there is no formal, interactive, fancy campaign page to send you to. So today's activism is going to be a little bit different than usual. Today, we aren't going to send you somewhere else or tell you to call people. That should be a given. Uh, We're just asking that you ask yourself, what can I do when it comes to the fight for Medicare for All? Maybe you're part of a church, synagogue, mosque, or a completely secular community where you regularly meet and have discussion groups. If so, ask them to have discussions about healthcare and Medicare for All. Maybe you go to every single town hall your politician hosts, and even the ones they don't. Make sure that you, your friends, and family attend together and put pressure on those politicians to support Medicare for All. Maybe you have a personal story to share about you, a family member, or a friend that illustrates just how much we need a single-payer system in this country. If so, make a video and share it or write about it in a letter to the editor of your local papers or both. If you want to start small, have your friends listen to this episode right here, and then organize a get-together to talk about it. Try a few different groups of friends or family, and be sure to include those who might not agree with you. You'd be surprised who actually supports Medicare for All when they hear the details. Maybe you're a great organizer and you can pull together regular Medicare for All support rallies at the state house or in front of your representative's local office and invite local action groups, doctors and nurses, and community leaders to take part. Perhaps you're the kind of person who always knows the right people. If you have access to politicians or influential public figures in your community or beyond, use those connections. Engage those people on this topic and see if you can convince them to be an ally in this fight in a public way. Of course, these are all just examples of what you could do. You might come up with something completely different, but all we're asking is that you take the time today to think about what you can bring to the table. Each one of us has something to offer in this fight, and you don't need to wait for a campaign to tell you what to do to start making progress. This issue affects every single one of us, and it will only be one with a major, overwhelming grassroots movement. That's you. There are few opportunities to make such significant lasting change in this country. So, after listening to this show today, make a list of at least three things you might be able to do long term to help Medicare for All become law. Then call into our voicemail line at 202 999 3991 to share your ideas and inspire others. Together, We can do this. And besides, it feels so good to be able to focus on something positive for a change. Am I right? The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if you believe healthcare should be considered a human right, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about identifying what you can do to support Medicare for All via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
12: Medicare for All bill has come out, and we, uh, we learn that it is reshaping the art of the possible. Uh, we are learning that uh, the scenario, the political landscape is changing all around us. Now, there's been some predictable pushback to that idea. For example, health insurance CEOs don't like it. Who knew? Uh, the main insurer trade group, uh, which is, of course, funded by health insurance companies and their leaders issued uh, a, what's called a strongly worded statement against Medicare for all, quote, whether it's called single payer or medical Medicare for all government controlled health care cannot work. Now, This is despite the fact that it does work in literally every other developed country on Earth. This is despite the fact that it works for Medicare and has worked successfully for Medicare for 50 years. This is despite the fact that it works for Medicaid and that, in fact, it works with lower margins, lower rates of inflation and more efficiency than any private health insurance company on the planet earth. Nevertheless, David Merritt, uh, the executive vice president of America's health insurance plans, we should invite him on the show, by the way, I think that would be interesting, says, quote, it will eliminate choice, undermine quality, put a chill on medical innovation, and place an even heavier burden on hardworking taxpayers. Now, let's take that statement apart a little bit. It will eliminate choice. Uh, Have you tried to go outside your health plans provider list? lately? Have you tried to pick a drug that's not on their list of approved drugs or formulary lately? have you? Because if you've tried to do any of those things, you know that you're dealing with a faceless bureaucracy that denies you choice and that, in fact, uh, there is very little recourse. Uh, it will undermine quality. Well, what does an insurance company do to protect quality. Given the fact that that outcomes, health outcomes in this country lag behind other developed countries that work under public uh, systems of health insurance, they have no case to make there. We'll put a chill on medical innovation. Well, first of all, most inno- medical innovation is funded by the taxpayer and then exploited by private corporations. Secondly, when the market that they have is a market uh, that is government funded, and they will figure out a way. They're clever people. They say it will place an even heavier burden on hardworking taxpayers. Wrong. Actually, it will lighten the load for hardworking taxpayers who are currently paying an average of $10,000 per year out-of-pocket, in fact, nearly $11,000 for so-called good insurance for a family of four. They will pay much less for that under a Medicare-for-all program. So, uh, these people are upset. Too bad. Now, we should also say uh, Dana Milbank of The Washington Post is also upset. He's saying it proves that Democrats are socialists. Well, that's just name calling or complimenting, depending on your point of view, but he doesn't mean it that way. The fact is that if Democrats are socialists, well, they support social security. If you like social security, you're a socialist too. They support Medicare. If you like Medicare, you're a socialist too. If you like our bloated defense budget, then I guess you're a military socialist. I prefer to call it doing what works.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Majority Report examining a bit of the history of the idea of universal healthcare in America. The David Pacman Show gave an analysis of Bernie Sanders' healthcare proposal. Radio Who, What, Why took a look at some of the reasons why healthcare in the U.S. is so extraordinarily expensive. Bernie Sanders on The Bernie Sanders Show spoke candidly with a Canadian doctor about both the strengths and weaknesses of the Canadian system. Democracy Now! spoke with Naomi Klein about the politics of the Medicare for All proposal. Our activism for today is for you to think about and act on what you can do to spark conversation and activism in support of universal health insurance. And finally, we just heard RJ Eskow on the Zero Hour lay out a succinct set of counterpoints to all of the nonsense talking points being put out by the private insurance industry. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from
1: Hello, BOTL community. This is Alan, member from Connecticut, calling in. Jay and I have been going back and forth regarding the Amazon purchases, and I just felt my obligation to update everybody. I tried about five different purchases with different ways using the Amazon app on my phone, and then doing the checkout through various browsers and different processes and so forth. And it's just apparent that that just does not work. So... Uh, I know Jay's encouraged people before I've done the testing and, and back and forth with Jay. And I just wanted people to know for sure, if you put something in your cart on an app and then you check out even using Jay's links, you will not be giving credit to best of the left for your purchases. So if you want to support the show and do, I encourage you to do that, to delete that app and then just bookmark it in whatever browser you use. Thanks, everybody. And stay awesome.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, thanks to Alan for his efforts figuring out the nuts and bolts of how the Amazon affiliate link works. He, He had suggested a few, I don't know, weeks or a month or two ago that shopping on a mobile app is convenient for a lot of people, but maybe there would be a way to swing it so that you can shop on the app and then check out through the link. And then he actually tested it. He and I were working together just by email uh, as he would make a purchase and then test to see if I could see that purchase coming through, and that's really the only way to really figure out how all that works. So thanks to his efforts for clarifying all that and then you know letting everyone know the details of how that works. If you want to support the show when you shop on Amazon by using our affiliate link, then first of all, thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate it, and I can't emphasize enough how much it actually helps, as surprising as that may be. But if uh, if you want to do it, I would reiterate what Alan said, besides uh, bookmarking the link in your browser, on your computer, if you want to do it on a mobile device, just don't use the the native app. Just use our affiliate link as... A bookmark, and um, and there's a way to set that bookmark as a button on your device. So you just you know it's right on your home screen. You hit the button, and it takes you to the website, but it goes through our affiliate link and since this has been like a little bit of a topic of conversation recently, I've gotten a handful of people who have written to me you know, trying to check hey, did this work? Um, you know how can we find out if I'm doing it right because Amazon doesn't give any indication like congratulations, you've supported best of left with your purchase like it doesn't say anything like that because it's just a regular advertiser link. And so I will tell you what I, I tell everyone it's it is possible for me to sort out whether or not the, the transaction went through as intended, but I have to wait until the item ships. That's the only time it shows up in my list, and there's no identifying information connected to it. And it, every single item purchased, even if you purchase a bunch of things together in one order, they're, they all show up on my list completely separately and disconnected from each other. So if you want me to check... You just have to wait until the item is shipped and then send me the actual name of an item that you bought. And I can cross-check that with my list. If that's too much for you and it's too much of a hassle, you know. generally speaking, I agree. Don't worry about it. And uh, And what I would say is if you use the link, there's really no reason to think it didn't work. So for the most part, you should just rest easy. Uh, Alan already did the work for you of uh, trying it on his mobile app and, and all of that. So now we have the details. If you go through the link, it'll work. And then finally, just a quick reminder to please call in with your ideas of what you can do to help support the Medicare for All movement, whether it's just something you are doing by yourself that's helpful, or you're doing it with your friends, or you're doing it with your larger community, or you're organizing massive events, or you're creating you know, an entire branch of the movement on your own and you need as much help as you can get, whatever you are doing call in and let us know whether you need people to join you in your efforts or you just think that whatever you're doing could be replicated by others. Call in and inspire us. As we said before, the only way that we are going to succeed is with a massive grassroots movement, and that means all of us working individually, together, simultaneously, and making it happen. So keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202 9993991. 9993991. And now finally, the very last thing I want to mention to you today is that, of course, last week we had a rerun, which means that we also had a brand new uh, bonus episode for members. And th- I-, I think you're going to want to hear this one. There was a lost commentary in there and I explain all about how that came about, but I, I recorded an entire commentary. I thought it was a really interesting premise. And then I just didn't feel great about it. I didn't feel good about the ending. I, I I couldn't stick the landing. That was the problem. And so I ended up basically just giving my commentary on DACA recipients and Obama's response to all of that, and the and, and questioning whether or not DACA recipients are a threat. You may be surprised at my answer as to whether or not Docker recipients are a threat. And, and so I I go through the, the commentary. I yet again fail to stick the landing, but then Amanda and I discuss it and, and maybe come to a little bit better understanding of the whole situation. So you're not going to want to miss that if you are a member, but for some reason not getting the ad-free episodes and the members-only bonus content Either search your past emails to find the details that you got when you signed up, or simply email me, J at bestofleft.com, and I'll be happy to help set you up. If you are not yet a member, now is a great time to sign up. You can either find us on Patreon, just search for Best of the Left, or go to the contribute page at bestofleft.com. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, and of course, thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
12: And it's a and shame How we
5: get so trained
7: Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past ourselves. Stories and forget how to listen. We can't
5: see. Past